I think that uh, I think that scripture is very, um, you know, sometimes God just gives us tangible uh, images that that go along with the words that are in scripture, and I think it's no mistake that uh, that it's really foggy outside right now. You know, we don't yet see things clearly. Right now, we can barely see past the parking lot, and yet the world is still out there, isn't it? And that's true on a that's true on a physical level this morning. That's true on a spiritual level this morning too, you know. And uh, so I pray that the words that we're going to look at today in Scripture, I pray that those words that were read to us uh, out of Scripture today, are going to be especially poignant and especially true in your hearts today. Would you pray with me just for a second, please? Oh Father, um, I echo the prayers that have gone on this morning beforehand, God that that we would be able to leave whatever we've got going on at the foot of the cross today. Uh, That we would not put it back in our backpack when we're done today. (laughs) We would leave it at your feet, Lord. That we would let you be God. That we would let you be in control as you always are. Lord, I pray that your word would speak today. I pray that you will give me the gift of preaching, Lord, that I could be true uh, not to my ideas or not to my words, but I'll be true to your words, Lord. I pray for the power of your spirit. I pray the things that need to stick today in our hearts and our minds will stick. I pray the things that don't need to, that they will just fall away. And, and that what will remain is your, your enduring truth, your enduring word, your enduring presence. Thank you, God, for being the God who is over all and in all and through all forever and ever. To you be the glory. Amen. So I still, I'll, I'm going to get a little transparent with you guys here and I'm going to hope I'm not going to go too long on this, but... I still remember kind of this feeling, this really strange feeling of detachment and um, almost kind of like I was sitting behind myself as I sat in this high-backed leather chair in the boardroom at the church. You are never ready to hear that you're being let go from a ministry position. But you're also never ready to hear that in order for the church to remain solvent, they're having to let the entire ministry staff go. And that's the, that's the, that's the situation that it had come to. And, and I, I love every single one of those men that sat around that boardroom and delivered that news on May of 2009 to us. Um, and... Uh, or no, it was 2010, sorry, 2010. And I still love them. And it didn't make any sense. And I got angry, and I got scared, and I remember going out of the boardroom into the auditorium into one of the empty pews, and I remember sitting down and sinking into one of the pews and just starting to sob. Because I had a lot of questions. I immediately, you know, my, my concern was for the church. My concern was for my family. Um, you know, how, how was the church going to deal with this? My concern was for my family. How, were, how was I going to provide for them? Um, ministry jobs were not, we were feeling the effects of all the financial crisis that had happened in, in the States in 2008. There weren't a whole lot of jobs in our area, and there were very, very few ministry jobs. How are we going to sell our house? I mean, the market was absolutely flooded. With uh, with bank sales and foreclosures, I mean, how are we gonna how are we gonna sell our house? Um, the thing that worried me the most was, 
what was going to happen to this blonde-haired, blue-eyed toddler who had come into my house and who I had come to know and love like my own flesh and blood, like my own son. What was going to happen to him? How are we going to be able to continue the foster to adopt process for Clay when it looked like we were going to be having to leave the state in order for me to find a job? What was going to happen? And I didn't walk out of that church that day with any answers. I only walked out with a lot of questions. And I watched the dream that our family was floating on seem to kind of shipwreck on the rocks of our current circumstances. Now here's the thing. This May, it's going to be four years since I walked out of that church building with my questions. And it's easy for me to see the providence of God now. It's really, really easy for me to see looking backward. He's carried my family and I to places and situations that we would never have thought that we would be in, including here. He has put us in places both good and bad, but each uniquely preparing us for where we are right now with you, church. And he's been faithful to Clay. (laughs) You know, we watched him do unimaginable things to protect the dream that he might one day be a Hutchinson in name as well as in heart. And he's been faithful to that. You know what? He has been faithful to the church at Central Kitsap. And he's been faithful to those elders that led in very, very, very difficult times and made tough decisions. Um, Decisions that broke their hearts and broke the hearts of the people around them. And as they shepherded, now this church is experiencing growth and vibrancy as well. You're going to get to meet. Uh, you're going to get to meet the guy that's preaching for them here in about three weeks, February 16th. He's going to be coming up and spending some time with you, and I'm going to be going over there and uh, spending some time preaching with them. Uh, it's going to be an excellent exchange, and I really, really look forward to it. Um, but see, the thing is, is that none of us knew any of that then. We didn't know any of that at the time. The future, as Paul describes it in our reading this morning, is shrouded in mist, shrouded in fog. And all we had to anchor us was the steady trust, the unswerving hope, and the promise of extravagant love in the face of our circumstances. That's all we had to go on. And see, I I speak this way because I know that we've all been there in some way or shape or form. While my experience may be unique, the features of it are not. We all ride this roller coaster called life with its high climbs and its unexpected drops. And right now, you know someone who just found out that the cancer is gone. And you know someone who just found out that the cancer is back. Right now, you know someone who's estranged from their family. Right now, you know somebody who's experiencing reconciliation and restoration in their family. Right now, you know someone who is in deep financial need. Right now, you know someone who is just experiencing unexpected material blessing. There are people all around you who are rejoicing. There are people all around you who are despairing. This is the constant reality of life, is that it's in motion. It goes up and down. It goes straight, and it turns sideways. And because it's in motion, the chances are that it's going to move in a way that's dissonant with the way that you and I think it ought to move. It's going to happen. It's the way life works. Of course, there's a piece of that that's tied to that inherent fallacy that you and I have to assume that reality works the way that we think it should. 
And we often translate that into God only working the way that we think he should too. Rather than seeing ourselves rightly in the span of creation, in the span of eternity. But there's also this nagging fact, besides my short-sightedness and my kind of spiritual myopia of life sometimes, where I think that everything ought to work the way that I want it to work. There's also this nagging fact that as in the beginning of the Genesis narrative, we know God sets reality up to work under a certain order and then chaos is able to enter in and start working against and undermining that order. And the question comes, well, who's more in control now, God or the chaos? I mean, we're much too sophisticated for a blind assurance or acceptance of the triumph of the ideal in the face of reality. We're not going to drop it down to sound bites and pundits and things like that. We're, we're too sophisticated for that. But at the same time, we dare not try to assume that God has no hands but ours to make a wrong situation right. Neither of those is a correct assumption. Last week in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's story, we talked about the theme of God's faithfulness when we don't readily see the outcome of his promise. The story of Joseph is going to develop that theme a little farther and develop that idea even more and ask us to affirm God's faithfulness and God's goodness, not just in the absence of the outcome that we long for, but in the presence of things that seem to kill the dream that we're longing for. The proof, the narrator of the Joseph story says, is in the vision of God for us that will not be overcome by anything, even ourselves. Joseph's narrative becomes the testimony to that unlikely intertwining of God's perfectly positioned upper story with my very, very crazy lower story that seems to jump all over the place as the result of our choices and our failures and our successes and things that are in our control and things that are completely out of our control and all of that chaos somehow gets intertwined with God's trajectory because he's still going places and he's still doing things. The lower story of Joseph is full of these polar transitions. It's a tale of riches and ruin. It's a tale of betrayal and forgiveness. It's a tale of death and life. It's a tale of threat and protection. There's family strife. Joseph is quickly established in this unforgiving triangle of father and brothers and himself. And it's only a matter of time before this arbitrary love of Jacob that, that plays Joseph out as the favorite. And this favorite yet contentious status of Joseph as the herald of authority and the dream of the family future and this growing resentment in the ten older brothers, it's only a matter of time before it explodes. It's only a matter of time before it comes to a head. And it does. Right? The betrayal is swift and it is brutal. And it's only the half-hearted actions of Judah and Reuben that keeps Joseph's story from ending at the bottom of, of a dry well where he dies of starvation and exposure. Now, the alternative doesn't seem a whole lot better. He gets sold into slavery, but it is a continuation of the story. And even though we don't see it yet, we know that something else is going on. You and I are able to pull back and look at the entire narrative, but if you look at Joseph in the middle of the story, none of this would make any sense.
He gets stripped of a life of family and title and possession. He gets exiled to a place of loneliness and slavery and outcast status. But in a surprising turnaround, Joseph, through hard work and integrity, establishes a good life and enjoys the favor of his new master. But then the fall is coming again, and this time through the deception of a jealous and adulterous wife. And once again, Joseph finds himself stripped of everything and down at the bottom of a different pit. Seemingly to await the same end, starvation and exposure, the same one that he was going to have before. But again, the story's not over. And the one-time prisoner, through the ability to discern the dreams of Pharaoh and the future of the Egyptian empire, is made de facto ruler of Egypt to prepare them against a great famine, a force of nature that would otherwise cripple the empire and kill the promise of the chosen nation of Abraham before it ever gets a chance to begin. And so then the story reaches its climax. The brothers repent. The relationship in the family is restored. Jacob's grief over his apparently dead son is removed. The promise is protected. The region survives the famine. And the story ends on the upswing instead of tragedy. If you had to plot it, it's going up and down and up and down and up and down. And fortunately, it ends in up instead of down. If you're looking at it from just that perspective. And that's a fine message in and of itself. It's a message of being it's a message of being faithful, it's a message of being full of integrity, it's a message of reconciliation, it's a message of restoration. Um, it, it has a lot of positive things about it. And you could tell the story that way. But that's only one part of the story. That's not the complete story, is it? Because that's the story that's centered on Joseph. And I have a revelation for you, church. Joseph is not the main character in this story. It may sound like kind of a churchy answer, and I'm okay with that. All right? But Joseph isn't the main character in this story. The main character in this story is God. And the question is, is how is God, who does not come down out of the sky in the story and say, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is what I'm doing, and this is why I'm doing it, so everybody just be okay okay he doesn't do that and yet it's the story of how he's going to move this promise made to abraham and isaac and jacob from being just this little wandering nomad family in the middle of canaan to an actual nation with an actual land with the ability to actually be everything that he promised especially how he's going to protect it against what seems like it's going to be completely derailed by circumstances beyond anybody's control. That's what this story is really about. And it's when you marry these two stories together, that's when you get the full story of what Joseph's about. While Joseph's story spans the last 14 chapters of Genesis, the heart of it and the key to us being able to interpret it rightly is found in two different statements by Joseph, both really toward the end of the story. The first one is in chapter 45, verses 4 through 8. When Joseph's identity is finally revealed to the brothers. Three times he says to them, okay? You have to understand it is not you who sent me to Egypt. God sent me here. He sent me here in order to prepare the way for our family to come and to be spared from the famine. He sent me here in order to create a place for the chosen nation to grow. And he sent me here to bring about the saving of many lives, not just ours. 
And then the second statement is in chapter 50, verses 19 through 20, right at the end of the narrative, right at the end of the story, at the end of the book of Genesis. When Jacob's died, and now the brothers are worried that now that dad's out of the picture, Joseph is going to basically all this revenge that they assume that he's been holding on to for years, that now they're going to get theirs now that the old man's not around. And once again, Jacob has to, Joseph has to pull them out of the lower story and into the upper story a little bit and say, hang on, who's really in charge of the story here? Am I in the place of God to make judgments here? Am I in the place of God to tell you what's going on here? Or, or, or to say I should have retribution for this? No. No, 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 no. You intended to bring harm to me, but God intended it before you intended it for good. The saving of many lives. It comes back to the saving of many lives again and again and again for the story of Joseph. It comes back to the saving of many lives. Both of these statements do something really, really amazing for us, okay? They bring the true main character of God to the front of the story. And how God is still about the business of protecting and fulfilling his promises to Abraham and his eventual promises to the entire world, including you and me. God's the one preparing the means to save Israel from the famine. God is the one who is, who is, who is preparing against this natural disaster that has no cause, no blame in the narrative. It is just chaos. And God is reordering life to overcome it. He provides, he puts the means in place, he brings the plans to bear in spite of all the things that set themselves up against the vision of the dream of salvation that God has planned for his infant nation. The really significant thing in Joseph's story, I think, is how much more it's like our interactions with him today than his encounters with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are. See, there's this theory that this narrative got fully developed in two different times in Israel's history. It started as an identity narrative from the Israelite slaves in Egypt. using to Basically, they were using this story to explain, how did we get here anyway? How exactly did we get to the point where we're slaves in Egypt? And they have to be reminded, like, don't forget, God had a promise way back here. And the reason that we're here is because God has been doing something and is still doing something. Because, honestly, to be called a chosen nation and to have this promise in your background and then to be slaves in Egypt, it really doesn't look like those two things are matching up very well. And so it started as a story of, like, how did we even get to where we are? Don't forget what God was doing. What God has been doing. Because the promise is God still will be doing Right? But then, even though at that time they needed something to help make sense of their current difficulties in the light of who God is, at a time when God was seemingly silent and seemingly removed from their pain and slavery, okay, the theory is the narrative gets its final revisions during Solomon's reign, a time of really great prosperity. A time of human achievement for Israel where many people are really starting to put their faith in the institution of the monarchy of David and his descendants. Maybe even a little bit over Yahweh. And people are starting to say we can do so much by ourselves as humanity. What's the relevance of God's reality and vision anyway? Think about that for a second. 
to me, that really makes the story stand out for us because the time where now more than ever we trust in human enterprise, we trust in human ingenuity, we trust in human institution. We're in a culture where the reality of God isn't necessarily doubted. It's just considered mostly irrelevant, right? That's great that you believe in God. And then there's life. You, you know what I mean? Like those two things have become very, very secularized, very, very separated. Have your beliefs. That's great. Doesn't really have any impact on real life, does it? Still got to pay the bills, still got to go to work, still got to live your life. Life just kind of goes on. See, there's this, there's this dichotomy of our existence and this dichotomy of this narrative that just fits so well for us. Okay? We're in a time and place where God is considered irrelevant, and yet we're at a time and place where more and more people are trying to make sense of their circumstances, especially their tragedies and their difficulties, and none of that human ingenuity and none of that human institution and none of that human anything seems to be answering those questions. Because we don't have any greater framework than our own experiences and our understanding to try and make sense of it in. And it's this narrative of Joseph's and our time that have the op- we, give the, we get this opportunity to kind of peek in behind the veil of our lower story and see God, vibrant and powerful as ever, quietly working in the background. See, with Abraham and Jacob, God makes himself manifest in the story all the time. Voices from heaven visions and dreams of his majesty messengers that take on bodily form and deliver prophecy from the most high there is none of that in joseph's story i won't say none of that okay joan joan did point out to me there's one point where there's this one nudge where god tells jacob don't be afraid to go to egypt it's okay that's the only time you hear of god actually like literally speaking he never does it to joseph he never does it to the brothers it's all under the surface it's all in the background Okay, there is one single cryptic dream that Joseph has that gives a fuzzy image of the future. And it's not even really clear that God's actually the author to any of the other characters in the story, including Joseph. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't even really start to get that it's actually a dream that actually has fulfillment until much later when his brothers are actually bowing down in front of him. And even then he doesn't realize it's from God. He just kind of goes... Whoa, whoa, this is, this is actually coming true. Uh, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? And you look for about four or five chapters as Joseph is wrestling. How do I actually interpret the fact that this dream is coming true and that God may be actually, is God doing, what is God doing with this? Especially what's God doing with this in the light of, like, I still don't know if I can trust my brothers. Just because I see that maybe something big is going on in the story doesn't mean that they do. I don't know. And Joseph has to kind of wrestle with all this up into that statement in 45 where he says, okay, you need to realize, I get it now. (laughs) You didn't send me to Egypt. God sent me to Egypt. We get some inclinations. We, we're, we're lucky. We get some inclinations because the narrator allows us to peek in and see this subtle maneuvering of God through the good and the bad and the ugly. Okay? 
of, of Joseph's lower story. We see that in the bottom of the well and as a slave on the road to Egypt and in the service of Potiphar and in the clutches of prison and Potiphar's adulterous wife and the joyless depths of everything that comes beyond that and at the right hand of the most powerful individual in the known world, wherever it is that Joseph is, God's hand is on him. And that's the, that's the subtle reminder we get all is, is that the Lord's hand was with Joseph. The Lord's hand was with Joseph. But the Lord's hand was with Joseph just all the way through. But that's really the only indication that you get in the narrative. And we have that benefit, but I don't know that Joseph did. He doesn't have that luxury. All he gets to see are the glimpses, the choices, and this vague, growing hope that he attaches himself to that he will continue to believe and he will continue to follow even though he doesn't see how it's all going to pan out. And this developing talent for discerning and interpreting vision may be there for a greater purpose, he starts to realize. We have no indication that until his brothers are at his feet bowing down, fulfilling the dream for so long ago, that Joseph has any concrete understanding of what's been happening. For all we know, his statements about God's authorship are like stream of consciousness. It's like him naming the truth as he's realizing it. As he looks back over his life like we do, and with hindsight being 20-20, he's finally able to kind of fit all the pieces together and go, okay, I didn't get this at the time, but now that I'm looking back over where I've been, now I can see that God was doing this, and he was positioning that, and he moved me here, and if I hadn't done that, and if that hadn't happened to me, then I wouldn't be where I am. And because God's planning to do, oh, wow. How many of our lives work that way? Very, very rarely do we understand the implications of what God is doing at the given time. Only when we look backward and see how he has been purposing and planning all of these things, do we see the pieces fit together into something coherent that we can understand? And sometimes it takes a whole lot longer than Joseph even, right? Sometimes we're going to go our whole, I mean, I, I, know, I know sometimes it sounds like a cop-out answer, but, you know, you hear people say, well, we'll know when we get there eventually, someday, and, and that there may be heaven and not here. It's true, right? It's true. God is patterning things and that's one of the themes that comes throughout the entire Bible, is that God is patterning things in a way that requires trust, because when the lower story looks like it's going somewhere else than God's trajectory, which one are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your circumstances, or are you going to trust the trajectory of God? And that's the tension that Joseph lives in, and that's the tension that we live in. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways. And he tacks on, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish the purpose that I have intended. I love that because I don't know about you, but so often I get caught in the trap of thinking that God thinks like me. And when I really think about that, I really hope that God doesn't think like me because God needs to be much more organized than that. God needs to be much more on top of his game than that. You know? And, and while we 
while we have to come to the reality that, that, that like in our songs today, when we have proclaimed God as holy, that that holy means other and apart and separate and high and, and, and beyond me, not like me. And yet God has been, God shows yet again in Joseph and will continue to show through the story that he is creating bridges to me, to you, to us. So that even though he is not like us, he is very much God with us. God with us, God not like us, but still with us. God lifted high, and yet God who lifted high comes down and is with us and interacts with us and desires to raise us up to where he is. That's been his constant movement, and that's his movement in the narrative of Joseph and the narrative throughout the Bible. Is God that is lifted high and yet God who comes down in order to lift us. If we're willing to let him lift us up out of our story. Because sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're so inundated in our circumstances, we're like, I just, I can't even see. It's like the fog in the parking lot that is now, you know, starting to clear out at least so I can see the bus barn now. Okay? We're trying to look. And we're shrouded in the midst of our circumstances. And yet God says, in the middle of that, know that there is still a story that I am creating and a story that I am writing. And it intimately involves you. Are you willing to let yourself be raised up out of of where you are to be where I am? Joseph lived most of his life between this vague inception of God's dream and the full disclosure of God's dream at the end. You know, you think about it. They're like little bookends on his story. He gets this very, very vague understanding at the very beginning, and then it all gets revealed right at the end. It's all made clear right at the end. But where is most of Joseph's life? It's in the in-between. And in a sense, you and I live most, if not all, of our existence there too. We live between the inception of the dream and the completion of the things that God has in store for us. And for us as individuals, and I also think for us as a church, the call of God's story in the life of Joseph is to raise our eyes, is to be lifted up to where God is. Out of our circumstances, whether it's the good or the bad or the ugly, And to see the greater future that God has in store for us, that he is still working toward. And that's not some distant, some irrelevant action. It is a nearness and a presence that is subtly transforming us and subtly moving us and subtly leading us. And are we willing to let his vision guide us? Subtle though it may be sometimes. See, despite what we may have heard, God is actually out ahead of us, church. He's not behind the times. He's out in front. And he's not just out in front, he's drawing us forward into his future. And so my prayer for us is that we would be so bold and so devoted that when the future is hazy or unclear, 
like Joseph, we will choose to cling to the things that Paul described that lead us to completeness in him. Trusting steadily in him. Hoping unswervingly in him. And being both recipients and reflectors of that extravagant, incomparable love that he has for us. May we go and may we be those things. Today, tomorrow, and every day there.